Well, the word home is a word that invokes deep emotion. The word home is not neutral. The word home is not about sheetrock and tile and uh, square footage. The word home is, is, is about passion and, and love and acceptance. Or un- it wasn't condition, unconditional love or it wasn't a very affirming place. The word home, it's a word that has context. It's a word that means something to you. All of us in this room have an impression of the word home. And home means something to every single one of us in in this room. You can kind of divide home into about four different categories. You can probably do 25. We don't have time. But some of you are in that top tier. Very few homes, but some homes were at the top of the ladder. It was great. Mom and dad were stable. Mom and dad were healthy. Mom and dad stayed together. Mom and dad loved you. It was just one of those incredible environments. Very, 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 very few homes are at that top tier, but there are some. Probably many of you in the room were in that next tier. Home was good. It was good. Um, They had challenges. There was, you know, some job losses and some you know, deaths, and there was some movement, and we moved, and I mean, home was good. There was, parents were tried, or, you know, single mom or single dad. Home was okay. Probably the next category, if you're really honest, wasn't that great. It was filled with unnecessary challenges. Then that fourth category really is, um, it was disaster. It, It was filled with moral chaos. It was filled with emotional chaos. That, that fourth level was not just dysfunctional, it was all caps dysfunction. Well, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, you've watched maybe Mike Pence be sworn in. Uh, probably about 45 minutes where Mike Pence uh, lived and from Anderson, Indiana, Indianapolis. Um, just hardworking Midwestern folks were my, my mom and dad. I lived in the same house all 18 years before I went to college. 49 Green Springs Road. Lived at the same house. My dad's had two jobs. 40 years, General Motors. 18 years, the Indianapolis Colts. My, my family and I, we ate every night at 5.15. Not 5.16, 5.15. My dad got home at 5.13, had a little routine. And then at 5.15, we ate dinner every single night. Um, that's just kind of how, how I grew up. And it was just like my mom was stable. My mom was a great mom. My mom, you know, was just your typical great uh, wife and mom. So I, I, I really probably somewhere between here and the other category grew up. So at age 20, I had to have an internship. So I'm in Bible, I'm in this college thing in the ministry plan, and it's a good thing you have to have internships because you need to understand what ministry is all about. So I have an internship at 20, and the university president suggested I spend the summer with this pastor named Ken Ursini. Now, Ken was divorced, but he was now a pastor in a Disciples of Christ church, and um, huge parsonage house, and Ken was good at this. He liked having preacher boys come for the summer, and we would play, you know, tennis, and we'd play ping pong, and then we'd go meet all these different people, and, and Ken, Ken was good at this. Now, he couldn't preach worth a flip. He just was a terrible preacher. He's dead now. I'm going to talk about him. He was a horrible preacher. Couldn't preach at all, but he was 
so good with people. So we would go to breakfast. Every morning, little, little t- town, we'd go to breakfast, and I would meet somebody, and I would go like, wow, those are like great people. He would say, well, really, she's, she's sleeping with the short order cook back there, and it's all going to, you know, break loose pretty soon. I'm like, really? And then we go to lunch at a different cafe, and, and I would say, gosh, those are wonderful people. And he'd say, well, you know, in a couple hours, he starts drinking, and then he'll, he drinks every night, you know. And after the first month, Ken Orsini said, he said, Kurt, he said, you've got to say something other than wow every time I tell you one of these stories. So I, I, I kind of grew up like that. Then I became a pastor. And I have a front row seat to all the things that take place within all these different families and lives. I'm 28 years old. It's Christmas Eve. I've been a senior pastor for about 11 months. And um, this guy calls me about 7 o'clock. I got to meet you at church. I got to meet you at church. So, you know, he calls about three times. Okay, I'll meet you at church. 7.45 on Christmas Eve night, I'm at the church. And he wants permission to leave his wife, they have three small children, five, three, and one. He wants permission that night to be able to leave her after our meeting. Now, I'm fiery now at 56. You should have seen me at 28. I wanted to collar the guy. I wanted to jump across the desk, and I said, if you expect me to give you a blessing on Christmas Eve to leave your wife, in fact, I'm going to beat that, and I really did say it, okay, I I confessed my sins in front of all of you before I had communion, I'm going to beat the stew out of you, although I didn't use the word stew. (laughs) I'll leave it up to your imagination, okay? I I mean, I, I had no idea that all of us are so challenged and we're so struggling with family. I had no idea that all this went, but for the last 35 years, I've had a front row seat to this. So I want to use a story this morning that may seem so out of place. On Christmas Eve, after the five Christmas Eve services, I got a text from a friend of mine at 1.15 in the morning, and he said, really, dude? Really? The great white horse and the battle of Armageddon on Christmas Eve, you've had way too much eggnog, all right? So I'm going to tell us a story this morning about the execution of John the Baptist. And it's going to start off our home series. So hang with me on this. Ready? Mark chapter 6, verse 17. Here we go. Mark 6, 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. Now, what's going on here? Well, you know the story of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king who had all those baby boys, two years of age and under, killed. Herod the Great had some sons. And one of his sons was Herod Antipas. The other was Herod Philip. And what Herod Antipas did was he stole his brother's wife. Herod uh, Antipas stole Herod Philip's wife, and she was a very willing partner to this. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias. Now, Herodias was Philip's wife, and Herodias said to Antipas, okay, I'll go with you. Okay, I'll become your wife. I know it's wrong. I don't care. I'll I'll do this. He did this because of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, whom he had married. Now, I just want to show you some pictures of where this took place. Here's Here's a fortress The Dead Sea is behind it. The blue is the Dead Sea behind it. At the very top of that mountain, Herod Antipas builds this fortress. And so they're up there. And this is now the next picture actually shows you this is where Herod and Herodias lived. And the daughter who danced is named Salome. They're all there. And this is where John was actually bound, 
put in prison, and this is where John was beheaded at the top of this huge fortress. All right, let's look at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, now, see, this would have gone really well for Herod Antipas and for Herodias had it not been for this pesty prophet. But there was a prophet in Israel. He was Jewish, he was a Hebrew, he was an Israelite, and there was a prophet in Israel who said, this is not right. I don't care if you're the king. You cannot rewrite the law. An executive order is not going to change anything. You must obey the laws of Moses. And John is a good Jewish boy. He knows the Ten Commandments. He knows this is outside of God's will. And John's not relenting. You can take my head. You can kill me. I I don't care. Truth is truth. I don't care that the Greco-Roman influence is dominating our culture. This is wrong. You stole her. God has a plan A for marriage. There is a way that God designed for sexual relations within marriage, and you're outside the margins of Scripture. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful. It's against the law of Moses. It's against the Scriptures for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John, and she wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous man and holy. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. Do you get the impression that Herodias is kind of like sitting back waiting? What's the right moment to like take him out? On, this, on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, it must have been some dance, right? The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and she said to her mother, mom, what do we do? And her mother wasn't very good. Her mother was a villain. She said, the head of John the Baptist, she answered. Now, here's a question I have for you. What do you do if you were raised in a home of moral chaos? What, what do you do today if you were raised in a home that was absolute unethical, immoral, illegal? What, what do you do today if that was your home life? Now, again, I, I realize that there's a good section of people in this room that you were raised just like this. How do you break the cycle? How do you become, even if you're single, an uncle, an, an, an aunt, a niece and nephew? How do you do the things that contribute to home life if this is how you were raised? Can you change? If this is how you were raised, do you have any hope today? Let's finish the story. At once the girl hurried into the king and with a request, I want you to give me right now. See, she didn't say later. She said right now. Because it could have been 10 or 15 years, but it was right now. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately, uh, he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. All right, here's the question. What do you do if Herod was your father? What do you do if Herodias was your mother? 
What do you do if Salome here, this lady, was, was your sister? You see, if Herod was your dad, what do you do if you had a very foolish father? A father that probably drank way too much. What do you do if you had a father that was impetuous? What do you do if you have a father who just cowered to everybody? What do you do if Herodias was your mother? And she was adulterous and evil and wicked and and murderous. What do you do if she was your mother? What do you do if you had siblings that were willing participants to unethical and unlawful activities? Is there any hope for you? Well, I have some suggestions this morning. I want to give you six suggestions you want to follow along in your bulletin, that would be great, some fill-ins. And I want you to know this is going to be messy. I, I don't know that I got the right answers on all of this, but I want you to know that it's worth it to me for us to jump in together and kind of work together and begin to figure some of this out. Because this is keeping some of you from going forward. And you were raised with a Herod. You had a Herodias as a mother. How can you go forward? So here's suggestion number one. You may have to run from your past. You may have to leave it behind. You may even have to start all over again. That's hard to hear. But because of the unethical and immoral and because of some of the behavior of some of the people in your family, you may have to start over. You may have to run. You may have to leave it behind. You may have to even just begin again. And then you've got to wrestle with suggestion number two, and you've already thought of this. Those of you who are raised in church, raised in Sunday school, well, what about honor your father and your mother? You already thought about that when I started this sermon. And you may have to work through this. You may have to work through the honor your father and your mother commandment. Now, when God wrote that through Moses, I don't think he was talking about King Herod an evil man. I don't think he was talking about a wicked mother. I don't think he was talking about a, a, a villainous sister like Salome. I think what he was talking about is, is to continue this family unit, to continue the family to grow and be strong and be healthy. I think that's what God had in mind with Moses. But you're going to have to work through this. Because if this keeps you, a Herod and a Herodias, keeps you from becoming the uncle or the aunt or the mom or the dad or the grandmother or the grandfather that you're supposed to become, that's not God's will either, is it? Suggestion number three. You may have to find and study healthy families. This is one of the things that Danita's done in our home so well. Now, she was raised in that same tier, good parents, good family, good folks. Not perfect, but wonderful people. But what Danita's done is she's observed other healthy families. Oh, I like that. Oh, that's a good idea. I wonder if we could try that. Maybe we should do that. And, and, and so throughout the course of the years, my wife has just kind of watched this. You look out in, in Scripture and you see Mary and Joseph had a pretty healthy family. Joseph was an amazing man. He could have had his wife killed, but he didn't want to do anything inappropriate. He was very unselfish, wasn't he? Taking her on that journey, providing for her, protecting for her. Mary, you know, when the angel visited her, she said, well, how can this be? And then he explains it to her, and she said, okay, I'm in, whatever God's will is. I mean, these are two amazing people, Mary and Joseph, in the early chapters of the Christmas story. There's some amazing families in this church. There's some wonderful families right here in this room right now. Eh, nobody's perfect. Everybody's got some issues. But, but what, 
what does so-and-so do right? And, and what do they do that, boy, I really like that. And so we, we grow and we learn together. So we study healthy families and we find out what a healthy family begins to look like. Suggestion number four is the biggest one. You have to just to decide. You really have to decide what kind of a family that you want. I think that's the biggest suggestion of all. I think number four is the hardest one. You've got to decide what is it that you want. Because if you want to stay wallowing in your story and making excuses for why you're the way you are and making excuses for why you can't move from mile marker 8 to mile marker 10 to mile marker 15 to mile marker 20, then, then you can do that. But you have to decide what it is that you actually want in life. See, unintentional living does this. Unintentional living always has an excuse. Well, this is why I'm jacked up. This is why I messed up. This is why I can't go forward. Well, if I only would have had this, or if I'd have lived with your parents, or if I'd have gone to that school, or if I'd have been in that, in that community, if, the if-onlys are just, just relentless. But intentional living says, I got an idea. I think God can make me better. I got an idea. Let's do something stronger. Let's do something better. Let's make progress. Unintentional living does this. It always fixes the blame. That really doesn't give you an excuse. It may explain your situation, but it never justifies your situation. So unintentional living fixes the blame, but intentional living fixes the situation. Let me get some help. Let me ask for some advice. Let me have some people around me give me some some great tips on how to do this better. Unintentional living does this. It wonders what in the world happened. 30 years have gone by. I'm still in the same mile marker. How come I'm still in the same ditch? I wonder how this happened. But see, intentional living does this. It makes it happen. I've got to do something to move the needle forward. Unintentional living says, why doesn't somebody else do something? You heard that before? I wonder why somebody doesn't do something. But you know what intentional living does? Intentional living says, here's something I can do. I can do this. I can do this. I can't fix all this, but here's what I can do. Suggestion number five. Are you still with me? Suggestion number five is this. Be committed and willing to pay the price to get the change that you desire. That's a big one. You see, you, you may want there to be change, but are you willing to pay the price for change? Everybody wants to be healthy, but are you willing to pay the price to be healthy? Everybody wants to be spiritual, but are you willing to pay the price to be spiritual? Everybody wants a good home or a better home or at least the same kind of home in which you were raised in. Now, see, here's why this is important for all of us. Because even if you weren't in those bottom two tiers, you're going to have somebody who is. You're going to marry somebody who's down here. Or you're going to have a son-in-law or daughter-in-law who's down here. Or you're going to have a co-worker who's down here. Or you're going to have a neighbor. Maybe, maybe you were raised up here, but you're going to have somebody in your life who's down here. And you've got to be able to explain this to them and help them and guide them to be able to move them forward. And so you ask people, are you willing to pay the price? And then the last suggestion I have is the only way to really get what you want is to find yourself and to lose yourself. Now, what does that mean? Well, you really can't find yourself outside of Christ. Christ was your creator. The only way anybody can ever find themselves is to play and work and surrender to the creator. And so when you find the creator and you live within the margins of Scripture, you will find yourself. You will know what your purpose in life is. And then you lose yourself because then life's not about you. 
And the only people who have healthy homes and sustain healthy homes are the people who find themselves in Christ. Christ has changed me. Christ has transformed me. Christ has forgiven me. Christ is going to do all these great things in my life. Now, here's what I'm going to do for him. And you live the rest of your life where life's not about you. The biggest messes you got yourself into was when life was about you. Your greatest regrets in life were when life was about you. And when you lost yourself, those have been some of your greatest joys. They've been some of the greatest moments of your life when you actually found yourself and then when you, you lost yourself. So, if Herodias was your mama, which I hope nobody had that, but probably 20% of you did. If a Herod was your papa, which I hope it wasn't, for, but probably 20, 25% of you, that happened. What, what do you do? Can you break the cycle? Are you destined to repeat it? So I called a friend of mine about a month ago, and um, when I got the privilege of walking my uh, oldest daughter down the aisle a couple months ago, three months ago, um, he was actually the man who started the wedding. And so he was the one who started the wedding for us. And then after a little while, after I gave her away, I got to, to do the rest of the ceremony. But I've known this man now for over 35 years. And I called him up and I said, Jeff, um, I'm getting ready to preach this sermon. And um, you broke the cycle. He, he's, got a, he's got a Herod. I'm not sure she's a Herodias, but she's in between the mother. But if you knew the things that the dad did and the influence of the father and the, the moral chaos, he, he died a good 15, 18 years because of alcoholism, multiple affairs this, this father committed, high successful executive in a company, smoked himself to death, drank himself to death. If you knew Jeff's background, and then you know Jeff today, there is a God. So I said, Jeff, how did you break the cycle? He said, I, I, I don't really know. I, I have to think about it. I said, well, think about it. Get back with me. So here's what he wrote. He said, I, I was not raised in a Christian home. My parents did not speak much of God, did not praise a family, and did not have many character counts conversations. That's a good word. They didn't, they didn't talk about the character mattered, character counts. We did not have character counts conversations. My dad believed his primary responsibility was to provide for the family financially. My mother believed her primary responsibility was to manage the home and kids with some disciplinary help from my dad. My parents did love me, and they tried to affirm me in their values early in life. He says, my, my father was confirmed in a, in a Lutheran church as a middle schooler and felt an obligation to bring me through a similar process as his parents provided for him. I studied Luther's catechism as a 12-year-old each Saturday morning from 8 to 10 for about four months. While I learned who God was, I did not know who God, I did not know God. And on my way home from the confirmation service that Saturday morning, I distinctly remember my father saying to me, son, you've gone as far in religion as my parents took me. Do with it what you want. Religion is not my thing. His response to me at that time was disappointing. 
is I had spent a bunch of Saturday mornings studying something for which he apparently had no use. I went to a youth retreat about a year later with Central Church, which is a Memphis-based non-denominational fellowship. The retreat was in Heber Springs, Arkansas. A reformed alcoholic named Milton literally screamed intently at a group of startled, wide-eyed kids for about 30 minutes about how non-believers were burning in hell for not following Christ. I listened as Milton gave graphic illustrations of how people died gruesome deaths, such as being crushed by houses, burned by flames in auto accidents, house fires, burning oil, and several other graphic descriptions of people's deaths. At the end of each death story, Milton would scream very loudly, and where are these people now? They're burning in hell, young people. They're burning in hell. Milton strongly exhorted the kids to leave the room and pray to receive Christ with the counselors on the porch outside. I looked up, and everyone seemed like they were leaving to pray to receive Christ except me. I gave in to peer pressure, and I went outside, and I asked the counselor to pray for my dad to receive Christ, knowing that I was not a follower of Jesus. The counselor obviously knew that I was not a believer either and tried unsuccessfully to get me to pray to receive Jesus. That night, I laid down on my cabin bunk, and I was confused and scared. I prayed for Jesus to save me. Whether my prayer was sincere or not, I don't know. Or maybe it was just Milton who had scared the hell out of me. I just wanted to say that in church. He said, I I really don't know. If my prayer based on Milton's exhortation was effectual, you would not have seen change in my life during the next three years of high school. I pursued pleasure and foolishness, I looked for affirmation in relationships with girls, having a reputation as someone who liked to drink excessively, I loved athletics, could care less about academics. I pretty much just got by. But my junior year in high school, I was on a Young Life ski trip. Young Life is a parachurch organization. It's a Christian organization. I was on a Young Life ski trip at Frontier Ranch in Colorado, and the camp counselor was Roland Wilson. Roland communicated the same message that Milton had spoken four years earlier. God's message to me through Roland, though, was much gentler than Milton's, and it pierced my stubborn armor. His message was, you're a sinner without hope, save the loving sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross paid the price for your sin. Roland was right, and I did not resist. I sat underneath that cold, star-filled January sky, enduring sub-zero temperatures, and I confessed to Jesus, I need you. I am a broken, selfish sinner and will go to hell without you. Jesus, please save me and save me, Jesus did. After coming home from that ski camp, another Young Life leader named Barry Jenkins invited me to a Bible study. And one of my best friends, Mark, and a few other friends, we met regularly and we went through the book of James verse by verse during our junior and our senior year. It was an amazing experience. This time upon hearing scripture, the conviction produced a godly sorrow that caused change. The Holy Spirit had entered in. Thank you, Jesus, for your spirit. And then he fast forward to when he was 26 years old. I believe a significant milestone in my life was at age 26. After reading a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God, I was wrestling one night with God and his sovereignty, which means are you large and in charge, with God's sovereignty over my life. At the end of the wrestling match, I distinctly remember thinking and praying to God, what am I thinking? 
How can I resist an all-powerful God? Okay, God, here's my life. Take it, use it for whatever you want. Jeff's now 55, 56 years old. Married Danita's best friend. They were friends since the eighth grade. Danita and Deneen, kind of funny, the two Ds. And this man, I want you to know that, how do I say this? Some people kind of hold on to Christianity because they need a job or they need something or they're, they're, they're asking God to do something because they don't have like a lot of skill to maybe do it themselves. And so there's, it's, like, it's like a crutch. This man is brilliant. This man is a five-talent man. This man, he's at the top of the food chain. Started crane companies, is in the crane business. This guy has moved from success to significance. The highest level you can get is not to be successful. A lot of successful people in life. But the higher level above success is significance. He's moved to that level of significance. And every time I call Jeff, he's humble. Every time he calls me, hey, what can I pray for you? This is a guy who has leaned in, all in, loves Jesus with all of his heart. And he and his wife together, they've raised three amazing children. They love Christ. They love Jesus. And this couple, they've had hundreds of students in their home. They have purchased more spaghetti and meatballs than any Italian you ever know. And had all these kids over to their house, just feeding kids and pouring into kids' lives. But if you would know how jacked up Jeff Swanson's life was as a teenager, as a middle schooler, as a high schooler, and you would see Jeff Swanson today, it is impressive. It is amazing. It is the hand of God. It is the power of God. And that's what I want for you. Every one of you in this room, I don't know what your home life was like. I do care. I don't know what it was like. But I do know this. I know where it can go. I know what you can be. I know what God can do in you and through you and among you. you got to make a decision. you got to pay a price. You've got to lean in, lean on, and let Him transform you from the inside out. It's amazing what He wants to do in you. It's amazing the kind of wife, mother, grandmother, he wants to make you. It is amazing the kind of dad, husband, father, grandfather, he wants to make you. If you're single, it is amazing to me the kind of uncle or the kind of aunt, niece, nephew, he wants to make you. God is in the breaking of cycle business, and he wants to transform you from the inside out. So how can you pour into your home. How can you make your home better? I'm not talking about remodeling the kitchen. I'm not talking about sheetrock and tile. You know what? Nobody really remembers at their death, well, we lived in a 3,000 square foot home. We lived in a 4,000 square foot home. We lived in a, in a 1,500 square foot. Nobody remembers that. No, nobody cares. What people care about is, is, was there Christ in my home? Was there peace in my home? Was there scripture and prayer in my home? So I want to pray for you today. I want to pray for your home life today. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down front. I'm going to ask us to stand up at this time. 
And maybe today, there's a lot on your heart today because of the depth of this message. You were raised in a home like Herodias and Herod. You did have that. You, you, you're on the path to repeat that. You want to break that cycle today. Come down front. Let our prayer partners pray with you, pray for you, pray over you today. I just want to pray for you. Give your life to Christ if you've never done that. Come up for prayer today and grow and grow and grow. You are the King eternal, and we come before you. You are enough. Oh, you are enough. What do you want to teach us? Where do you want to lead us? What do you want to show us? You are enough. Transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.